Well, good afternoon, friends. In our tolerant society, whenever a Christian declares that something is wrong, we're told that Christianity is about love, not law. It's about grace and mercy, and therefore about acceptance of all people, all kind of people, whatever you think, whatever you believe, whatever you do, whatever chosen lifestyle you have, it's not about judgment, it's not about condemnation, it's not about rules, it's not about the law. It's about declaring anybody and everybody and anything as being acceptable to God and never declaring anything to be unacceptable to God. According to Cardinal Pell, even atheists are acceptable to God. Uh, the latest from the Dean that I've written, of which I presume you can get a copy on the way out, uh, raises the question of the, the debate that he had with Mr Dawkins a week or so ago, where much more important than the issue of atheism or not was the declaration that certainly atheists go to heaven. But friends, tolerance doesn't equal acceptance. And tolerance is not the same as acceptance, just the reverse. Tolerance is putting up with disagreement. Tolerance is accepting that the other is wrong, but it's not accepting the other. Acceptance is agreeing with the alternative. Tolerance is putting up with the alternative that you disagree with. Tolerance always involves non-acceptance, non-agreement. You don't have to tolerate something you agree with. You accept things you agree with, you promote them and you enjoy them, but you don't tolerate them. You only tolerate the things that you don't like. Your neighbour's loud noise and music, your friend's disgusting eating habits. These are the things you tolerate, but it's not a matter of accepting, approving or agreeing with them. Now, the Gospel is about forgiveness, but it's not just about forgiveness, it's justice-based forgiveness. See, over the 10 centuries, God tolerated sinfulness, though he never accepted it. For forgiveness that pardons wrongdoing still recognises wrong as wrong, whereas acceptance of wrongdoing declares that it's not actually wrong at all. Now, the trouble with tolerance with God's tolerance of sin over centuries, is that people, especially sinners, mistake and mistook his tolerance for acceptance. But the just God never accepted human sinfulness. He patiently endured it. He tolerated it until the time when he could justly forgive it through the death of his son. How can God of all the world, who judges justly with equity, forgive the guilty? For to forgive the guilty is itself sinful. But when the penalty is paid on the cross, he can justly forgive. That is, God doesn't wink the eye at sin. He doesn't pretend that wrong is actually right. He doesn't minimise the seriousness of injustice. He doesn't delight in our naughtiness or accept us as we are. 
He deals with sin by the atoning sacrifice of his son and he calls upon us to stop, to repent, to turn back from what we're doing because what we're doing is wrong and unacceptable to him. Now, this is the work to which Jesus' disciples had been called. They were to fish for men. By joining Jesus in announcing the coming of the kingdom and calling upon people to repent, for that is the opening message of the Lord Jesus when he started preaching in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 3. And as we come to see his discipleship and his discipleship training program, it really is about teaching people to repent. So Jesus warned the disciples that they would be persecuted for righteousness' sake. You see it there in verse 11 of chapter 5. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for it is your reward is great in heaven for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. No one ever persecutes the tolerant and no one ever persecutes the inclusive accepting people. No one persecutes... No, when persecution happens, it happens because people disagree with you. They persecute you for righteousness' sake. For those who teach everything is righteous, that there is no evil, there is no wrongdoing, they don't get persecuted. No one persecutes those who teach that Jesus accepts all people just as they are without repentance. The disciples are going to be persecuted like the prophets of old because they were going to stand up in front of their society and say, stop, you're going the wrong way, you're under the condemnation of God and you will be judged. You must turn away from what you're doing. You must live differently and that's why the society hated them. That's why the society persecuted them. The disciples were to be like the salt, like the light, like the city on the hill. Their lives were not to be hidden but distinctive and distinctively righteous, observably, distinctively different. Otherwise, they would be useless disciples. Distinctive not in the clothes that they wore, nor in the buildings they owned or the food they ate or the music they listened to, but distinctive in their good works. So verse 16, in the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. They were to do God-glorifying good works. Not works that would bring glory to them, but works that would bring glory to God. Works that clearly showed God was at work in them. Works that were not normal or natural for humans, but works that were supernaturally derived. Some years ago, a Christian woman I knew got a job at a semi-governmental organisation where the whole staff were paid illegal, non-taxed bonuses. When she refused, when she protested and refused her bonus, she was heavily censured, sent, uh, sent to, uh, to Coventry, as the saying goes, by all the rest of the staff, from the boss all the way down, for they all were acting corruptly. And her righteous acts revealed their corruption. And they were terrified it would reveal it to the tax office that she was doing that which is right. 
Her thirst for righteousness showed them up. This week, Charles Colson has died. Chuck Colson, the White House lawyer in the Richard Nixon time. At the time of the Watergate, everybody was heading for cover. Everybody was in a cover-up program. And Nixon was telling lies, as were his confederates. Colson was one of his chief counsellors, and he was his hatchet man and one of the evil people who lay behind the whole process. But Charles Colson was converted. And so he confessed to crimes, or a crime, that the Watergate investors didn't, investigators didn't know had been committed. Here was everybody else covering up their crimes, and here was this man, purely because he'd become a Christian, standing up and saying, yes, but I did this one. He was not guilty technically of the others, and so he was about to be released. But he accepted the guilt that was duly his and was sent to prison. It was an astonishing thing to do. So unnatural, so different. See, this is a good deed that is not normal for natural sinful people, but was prompted out of Christian convictions, as is my friend working on the bonus problem. Jesus has come to bring forgiveness, but not at the cost of justice. He's not come to dispense with justice and morality and righteousness of the law. He has come to bring these very things, along with forgiveness and mercy and grace. And so we come to this very famous part of the Sermon on the Mount today in chapter 5, verses 17 to 20. And it comes in two parts concerning the law. Firstly, Jesus in the law in verses 17 and 18. Do not think I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly, I say to you, unless heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Notice how Jesus talks of the law and the prophets. It's not the law alone, but the law and the prophets. For the prophets of Israel were the inspired teachers of the law. What the prophets did was take the law and apply it to their circumstance and situation. For us, the law, the word law, consists of rules and regulations. But to Israel, the law refers to the first five books of the Old Testament. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's the law. And when you read the law, you'll see these books consist of history and salvation, of genealogies and regulations, of covenants and prophecy, of promises and revelation. But that's what is meant by the law in the Bible. The later prophets explained the law to the people. From the time of Moses, the first great prophet, until the time of John the Baptist, the prophets upheld the law. And so the law and the prophets is a way of talking about the Old Testament, the whole Old Testament. Jesus comes, he says, not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. But not just the law, the law and the prophets. Fulfilling the law by doing what it requires, but more than that, 
fulfilling what it predicts and foreshadows in the future. Fulfilling the law in the same way as the fulfilling the prophets, by bringing into effect the things that the law and the prophets were looking forward to. He came to finish, to complete, to accomplish the Old Testament. So, for example, in the law of Deuteronomy, chapter 18, Moses predicted the coming of another prophet, just like him. The Lord your God, said Moses, will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen. That was Jesus fulfilling the prediction of Moses in the law. Or the prophet Jeremiah promised a new age when the law of God would be written on the hearts of his people instead of on the tablets of stone and the people would be moved to be obedient to the law. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. Similarly, the prophet Ezekiel prophesied, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. My friends, atheism does not get people who are converted to atheism to own up to crimes that no one knows they have committed. But the work of the Holy Spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ coming into the lives of a new Christian does move them like my friend or like Chuck Colson or like hundreds of others who coming to Christ have said, I can no longer live that way. I now need to live this way. I'm forgiven, but I need to put things right. I counselled a young man some time ago who had spent some time stealing cars and he found one of the easiest places to steal the cars were actually out of the insurance company guards where the stolen cars already been delivered and or out of the police yards. And he'd been stealing these cars for some time. He'd become a Christian. And I said, right, well, it's to the insurance company. It's to the police you now need to go about the cars. You have done these criminal things. Forgiveness is yours in the Lord Jesus Christ, but restitution must be yours as part of repentance. It's the Spirit of God that moves people in a way that is unnatural, but is a way that is deep and profound and very often real. So in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says, not the least requirement of the law will pass away till all is accomplished. He doesn't come to fulfil some parts of it, but all of it. It's not some parts are unimportant and we can ignore that now. He comes to fulfil it down to the smallest detail. It's neither abolished nor does it pass away because of Jesus. Rather, it is upheld and fulfilled. Now, Jesus' high view of the law is spelt out in the next two verses where we read of the disciples in the law, verses 19 and 20. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Notice how verse 19 commences with the word, therefore. These two verses are the consequences for the disciples of Jesus' coming. I've come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Therefore, as my disciples... This is how you must act. Firstly, your relative standing within the kingdom is seen in your attitude to the law. 
Who is the great one in the kingdom of heaven? Who is the least in the kingdom of heaven? Why, the great one is the one who teaches and does what the law says. That's the great one. And the least in the kingdom of heaven? Well, that's the one who relaxes the law and teaches other people to relax the law as well. That's the least one in the kingdom of heaven. Who is the greatest Christian? Martin Luther, St. Augustine, Billy Graham, John Wesley, St. Athanasius? I tell you who the great one is. It's the person who has quietly and purposefully got on with the joy of obeying God's word and teaching others to do the same. I mean, that person could be sitting right here in this building at the moment or might be living in Uganda in the last century. Their name may be not known to anyone in history, but their name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life and we will see it in due time. The reason why law-keeping is the basis for the relative standing in the kingdom is because law-keeping is the basis for absolute entry into the kingdom. The greatest is the law-keeper teacher. The least is the law-relaxer. That difference is within the kingdom. And that is because... You must be a lawkeeper to enter the kingdom, verse 20. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Now remember, friends, Jesus has called them to fish for men. He's then gone around fishing for men. Huge multitudes have come, the end of chapter 4. Great crowds. And when he sees the crowds, he calls his disciples over and says, now I'm going to tell you what it's about, men. It's about being persecuted. It's about being persecuted because you're going to be the light, the salt, the city on the hill that no one likes because you're going to be the teachers of the law. You're going to uphold the law because I haven't come to do away with the law. I'd be really popular if I'd come to do away with the law. Okay, friends, you've got the Old Testament, rip it up, go for your life, do what you want, live the way you want to live, and who would have crucified the Lord Jesus if he preached that message? No one would have. People would rejoice and be glad. He'd go on Q&A and be popular. It's a great message that everyone wants to hear. Sin with impunity. Do not ever worry about anything you do. But no, that's not the message. I haven't come to do away with the law. I've come to fulfil it, not abolish it. And therefore the least in the kingdom is the person who does away with the law and the great in the kingdom is the person who upholds the law because you have to keep the law to even enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, notice the connection between verses 20 and 19.20 is explaining 19.4. The reason why your standing in the kingdom is shown in your obedience to the law is because entry to the kingdom requires a greater obedience to the law than that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, I know that it is Jesus that keeps the law for us and that by his sinless observance of the law, my sinfulness was paid for. I know that he died his sinless sacrifice for me, the lawbreaker, and therefore my righteousness is found in him. But that's not what Jesus is talking about here in Matthew 5. That might be in Romans 3, but that's not what he's talking about here in Matthew 5. Here in the Sermon on the Mount, he's telling his disciples they must be salt and light. 
They must walk observably, law-keeping, in a way that exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, when we hear that standard, better than the scribes and the Pharisees, we're generally not all that impressed because the only thing we know about the Pharisees is what we read in the New Testament. And what you read in the New Testament is the Pharisees are always the bad guys. So if I've got to beat a Pharisee, that's all right. You know, it's like being marked on the curve. Stick in the dumb class and you'll always come out the top of the class. Just hang around with people who are no good and you're bound to look good, aren't you? And the Pharisees, well, what do we know about the Pharisees? Well, they're hypocrites and nasty people and so therefore I, I can beat them. I've got it hose and hosed. But that is a very 21st century Christianised view of the Pharisees. They were, in fact, at the time, the middle class moral lay people of first century Judaism. Their peculiarity, their kind of special unusual feature that made them Pharisees was their fascination, their fetish, their fanaticism in law keeping. They were the law keepers of all law keepers. They constantly were scrounging over the law to find out every jot and tittle of it to make sure they kept every part of it. To, to, to see them as the immoral degenerates that we can easily be better of is to see the Rotarians, the Apex, the Lions people, the kind of middle-class, hard-working, good people, moral people, the, the kind of backbone of society people as being the degenerates. Well, that's not... The, I'm sorry if you're a member of Lions, Apex or Rotary. Well, I'm not sorry. I'm very glad you are. They're nice things to be. But I'm not saying you're a Pharisee. However, that's what the Pharisees were. They were those kinds of people. Business people, good people, moral people. Their one weirdness was fanaticism for law-keeping. So when Jesus said in the context of law-keeping that your righteousness must exceed the Pharisees, the disciples would have been shaking their head and saying, no way, you can't do that. That's not possible. How can you be more fanatical than the fanatics? For them it would appear an absolute impossibility to be more righteous a law-keeper than the Pharisees. And notice in verse 20, it's not just a matter of degree about being greater or lesser, about relative standing in the kingdom. Verse 20 says you won't even enter the kingdom unless you're more righteous than they. The law-keeping standard that Jesus lived and died by and that he requires of his disciples for entry into the kingdom of heaven is that you are living like no Pharisee has ever lived in righteousness. Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets who spoke of a new age when all God's people would obey the law from the heart because the Spirit of God was coming to change people from the inside out as opposed from the outside in that law-keeping and rule-keeping tries to do. And so his disciples would have to do those observably distinctive good works that could only be divinely inspired, that would bring therefore glory to God, that would mark them out as salt and light, as people who had got religion, who had changed, and would make them unpopular and persecuted, and yet envied and praised, because God had touched them. So here are five quick observations from this passage about Jesus and the Old Testament. Firstly, the Old Testament is part 
of the Christian Bible. The Old Testament is our Bible. It's not a Jewish book, it's a Christian book. It's not a sub-Christian book, it's God's Word. It's not to be ignored, disregarded or discounted. It's our book to read, mark, learn and inwardly digest. We must, as we pray in Anglican prayer book services, incline our hearts to keep this law. Write all these laws on our hearts, we beseech you. The Old Testament is a fundamentally, profoundly Christian book given to us by God, given to Christians by God. Secondly, we must teach and obey it. Teach it to ourselves and to our children and to our society. I went to a famous church in the United States of America. There's a great preacher, I'm sorry to tell you, a greater preacher than I am. You're missing out. You'd have to go over there to hear him, but he's a great preacher. But I was alarmed to see in the tape catalogue of his church where he'd been preaching for 30-odd years that he'd preached on the whole New Testament but hardly any of the Old Testament. Just some obscure chapters from Daniel and Ezekiel of apocalyptic nature which would give views to his millennialism. But the law of Moses was never preached on. The Psalms of David were never preached on. The Old Testament was never preached on. Well, I say he's a great preacher, and just as preaching goes, he is a great preacher. But in another sense, Jesus is saying, whoever relaxes the old is not the great. It's the one who teaches the old who is the great. It's not a Jesus perspective. It's just he's a great rhetorical preacher. He's always interesting to listen to. And his teaching of the New Testament is always impressive. Thirdly, in reading, obeying and teaching the Old Testament, we must remember that the final explanatory chapter of the Old Testament is Jesus. In him all the prophecies find their yes and amen. To read the Old Testament without Jesus is to misread it. For he doesn't come to abolish it, he comes to fulfil it. So we have some people who will only read the New Testament and they are in error, and then you'll have the others who will read the Old Testament without the New Testament, like those in the synagogues of Sydney, and they are in error. So when the prophets promise a new age in which the law of God is going to be written on the hearts of God's people, and the people will be moved by the Spirit of God to keep the law written on their hearts, it's Jesus who makes that possible. It's Jesus who fulfills that. It is Jesus who dies for our sins that we were forgiven and rises up and pours his spirit into our hearts to give us new birth so that we will now do those things that are required of us by God. It's Jesus who's by the spirit regenerates a whole new people. So fourthly, with the coming of Jesus, a new level of righteousness promised and prophesied in the Old Testament comes into being. A new level of righteousness that so exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees that they're not even in the same league. A new level of righteousness that is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven for as Jesus said to the Pharisaic leader Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. For fifthly, the supernatural good works that the disciples must do to be the salt of the earth and the light of the world are the works of the law. That the Spirit of Christ writes on their hearts and moves them to obey. 
the great supernatural good works that the disciples are called upon to do is not to preach to millions, not to do miracles, not to drive out evil spirits of people. They're all very good things to do, nothing wrong with them. But that's not the key. The key is they are to live a different life. See, my friends, even from a Christian point of view, which is more important, the gifts of the Spirit or the fruit of the Spirit? It's got to be the fruit of the Spirit, hasn't it? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control. These are the things of the real deep work of the Holy Spirit. And if we are living with the fruit of the Spirit, then the world will see that we are different. And when the world sees that we are different, two things happen. One, we get persecuted. Two, people get converted. That's what happens. It's not the gifts. It's the fruit to see what kind of righteousness is like and how it exceeds the Pharisees and the righteous, the Pharisees and the scribes is what the rest of chapter 5 and all of chapter 6 is about. So this sets up for us the rest of the Sermon on the Mount. This is a very key passage then for the Sermon on the Mount because as he says about the scribes and the Pharisees, he doesn't repeat that phrase again. Until or the law and the prophets, until you go across to chapter 7, verse 12. Chapter 7, verse 12. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And so the law and the prophets section comes from chapter 5, verse 17, through to chapter 7, verse 12. The rest of this section is going to spell out for us what righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, what law-keeping righteousness looks like. For as we'll see in our future studies, Jesus takes the Old Testament righteousness to a new level of seriousness than anything anybody ever thought of before. For Jesus has the law of God not written on tablets of stone, condemning him for us for our failure, No, no, Jesus has the law of God written on our hearts, teaching us how to live to the praise and glory of our Heavenly Father. And it is radically, dramatically, transformingly different when we live this way. Let me give you a little anticipation. See, the law says you shall not murder. And then the Pharisee immediately says, well, now what does the word murder mean? It can't mean kill because I'm allowed to kill animals. It can't mean kill humans because I'm allowed to go to war. And so it only means killing under certain circumstances. Then I start defining down where it would be wrong to kill. I differentiate murder from manslaughter, then first-degree murder and second-degree murder. and I slowly whittle down until it's manageable. Whereas Jesus says... If you hate your brother, you have already murdered. Rather than minimising down the law to something that is manageable, Jesus opens up the law to its full implications, which transforms how I live. For you shall not murder means you shall always seek to live at peace with everybody. That's what it means when the Spirit moves your heart. It's radically different. It's a quantum leap different to most people's understanding of the law.
But it can only come about by being born again by the Spirit of God. And so as we come to the Sermon on the Mount, we're reminded to ask ourselves again, have you been born again by the Spirit of God? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for all good things that you give to us, but above all for the Lord Jesus Christ, for his death and for his resurrection, and for the pouring out of his Spirit, your Spirit, into our hearts to bring us to new life. We thank you for revealing yourself in the Scriptures, in the Old Testament, setting out for us your law, your plans, your purposes, in the prophets making clear what was coming upon us, what the Lord Jesus Christ would bring. But we thank you that Jesus came and has brought this. And we pray for each one of us, Father, that we might know the forgiveness of the kingdom through his death and that we might know of Jesus as our Lord by his spirit, moving us to new life, that we might live to your praise and to your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.